follow and you believe in the Shulchan Aruch. You accept the Shulchan Aruch. You accept the Shulchan Aruch, he said to me. He said, but everything we're learning, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be that anyone's accepting the Shulchan Aruch. You have the Shach and the Taz and the, and the, and the Prima Godim and who knows who else. And and a few others, and, and everybody's disagreeing with the Mechaber, disagreeing with the Ramor, and reinterpreting this, reinterpreting that. He says, that means that, uh, how, do we, how can we say that we're accepting the Shulchan Aruch? So I explained to him, it's true that sometimes the conclusions of the Nos, what we call Noisei Kalim, the Shach and the Taz, the Prima God, the people who were within 100, 150 years after the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch was in 1567. The Mechaber wrote the Shulchan Aruch first, and then afterwards, uh, the Ramor wrote the Hagos Ashri, uh, Hagos on the Shulchan Aruch, and that's from the, from the, from the Ramor. Before that, they wrote that they wrote their own svarim. They had the, 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 the mechaber wrote the, the base Yosef on the tour, and the Ramor wrote two other svarim: the Darkei Moshe on the tour, and also the Torah Chattas on the Yisur Heter. So they they gave all their sources, and then when they got together and they wrote the Shulchan Aruch, they weren't doing it together. I mean, the Shulchan the, Rav Karo wrote it separately, but then the Ramor. Had, who had been thinking of writing a Shulchan Aruch until he saw the Mechaber, he said, hey, I, that's all here already, what am I going to do? And then he looked at it and he said, you know, they're expressing, he's expressing the opinions and the Minhagim and the, the way of the, of the Sephardic world, but it's not necessarily binding on the people in the Ashkenazic world, the, uh, the, the Ashkenaz world. So he said, uh, therefore, he's going to write a Hagor. Now he could have written, Ramor could have written his own Shulchan Aruch, and all the Ashkenazim would follow that, and all of the, the Svartim would follow the Ramachaber, and that would be the end of it. But he decided, no, I'm not going to push aside what the Ramachaber did. It was an extraordinary work, and I'm just going to try to adjust or build on his back and just point out certain things, and therefore he didn't say, he didn't make it look like anything more than a Hagor. Hagor means like an add-on. It means like uh, notes, uh, uh, you know, some kind of additional material as opposed to something that's arguing or it's separate. So because they linked together, uh, the, um, the, the Jewish world accepted the Shulchan Aruch. But once the Shulchan Aruch was accepted, there was questions that came up because in the next hundred years, a lot of people said, hey, what does this mean? What does that mean? What about the fact that the Mechaber says this in Shulchan Aruch, but in the Beis Yosef he said that? They're both his books, and there are more as three books. He has the Darkei Moshe on the tour, he has the Torah Chattas on the Yisav Heter, which is really the main source of his, all his thinking is from the Yisav Heter, and then, and then you have the, uh, the Ramor on, on Shulchan Aruch, the Hagos HaRamor, so you have three different forms from the, from the Ramor, and a lot of times he doesn't agree in, uh, on his position, changes between these different sfarim. And now you have a question, what did he really mean? Where's, you know, where do you put the uh, dogesh? Where, where do we uh, say there are more paskind? Is it, is it a closed case? Is it open? Are there differences? Maybe in certain cases we go like this, go like that. And that's where all the discussion of Shulchan Aruch starts. So it, within about 100 years afterwards, there were many, many people who expressed their feelings, not necessarily... Uh, word for word, what it says in the Mechaber or the Ramon. And sometimes there's contradictions, and sometimes there's a choice between the Mechaber and the Ramon, and there's sometimes what did this mean? And so it's a lot of discussion, 
a lot of halachic issues. It's a very fluid thing, halacha, all the way down till today. People express opinions, but uh, it doesn't mean to say that anybody can come along and just sort of push aside the mechad and more. No one would do that. And uh, it, it has to be something, the, I said, as I said to him, that the discussion that happens is within the halacha and within the shulchan aruch, within the, uh, the confines of the people themselves. They're discussing what the Ramor meant and what the Mechaber meant and what they're arguing, what they're agreeing, and how would it play itself out in this halacha. Yes, they're arguing about the issues, but they're not arguing with the Shulchan Aruch. That's the difference. That's a background. The question tonight is, a fish with legs. Now, <laughs> we've never seen a fish with legs. You and I have never seen a fish with legs. We've seen a fish with fins, and there are fish without fins. There are fish with the scales and without scales. But we don't have any fish that we've seen that has scales and legs. Okay, but this is what really, really did happen. And you'll see, if you want to study it, you can study it yourself. Uh, you're looking in books. You'll see all of this recorded. And you'll be able to see this actual being, whatever we're going to call it, <laughs> we're going to give a name to it a little later, but uh, we're going to see what this being is all about. Now, I'm reading to you and discussing with you something from Insights into Halacha by a, 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 a big Talmud Chacham, a young man, but a big Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Yehuda Spitz, who is a Rebbe in Orsameach in Eretz Israel? A Rebbe, I think I should say Rebbe. He's a Rosh Kolel in Orsameach in Eretz Israel. And he writes articles called Insights into Halacha, very interesting ones, not just, uh, you know, the Halacha is, etc. He really goes into topics and makes a wonderful work on it. And you can reach it, if you want to get that, you can go to the website Orsameach, which is O H R dot E D U. That's it. O-H-R, for Orsameach, O-H-R, that's or, at dot E-D-U. That's the, that's the educational site. O-H-R dot E-D-U. And you just type in the name Spitz, and then all hundreds of uh, his articles will come up. Anyway, this is one he just got, just sent to, again, it's in, he had written it a few years ago, but he just sent it out, about Parshas Noyach. He said, in Parshas Noyach, we read about how Hashem brought the marble, and destroyed all living creatures ex uh, the save for, except for those that went into the Teba, and also the fish in the ocean was spared. It's, so now, what about a fish with legs? Is it a fish, or is it an animal? And was that one saved <laughs> in the flood? I mean, if it's an animal, and we have it today, presumably it was saved in the flood. It could be, and some people say this, that, that they, uh, there were species that were developed from the species that they had in the flood. That could be. Whatever it is, whatever was supposed to be saved was saved in the Teva. This is a real question that appeared in the halachic world 400 years ago. There was a rabbi, Aaron Roife, and he brought a fish, we call it a fish, it's called Stinkus, Marinus, S-T-I-N-C-U-S, Marinus, R-M-A-R-I-N-U-S, Stinkus Marinus. He brought in front of the Av Basin of Vienna the famous 
Rabbi Gershon Shoal Yomtov Lipman Heller, who wrote the most famous Svarim, the Toysvis Yomtov, the Torah Hashem, and Madana Yomtov. And he wrote these, these Svarim, and they brought in front of him this particular fish and asked his opinion whether it's kosher. And it started a tremendous controversy starting 400 years ago. This wasn't a simple shayla. It's known that the Chazal say that a kosher fish, well, the Torah says you have to have fins and scales. The so-called fish that they brought actually had scales but legs instead of fins. So technically speaking, is this a... is it not kosher because it doesn't have scales? I mean, fins? doesn't have fins? Or do we look at it differently? Now, Chazal, and it's quoted in two places, in two Gemaras about it. One is Mesech the Nida, which, uh, let me just give you the source's actual dafim. Mesech the Nida is daf mem, I'm sorry, Nun Aleph Amid Beis in a Mishnah. It says clearly there that every t- every uh, every everything that has scales has fins. Everything that has scales has fins. It doesn't say fish, by the way. It just says everything that has scales has fins. Okay, and it also in the Gemara in Chulin. Daf Samach Avov Amud Beis. So in that Gemara, there's a Toisvus. And Daf Samach Avov Amud Beis is a very, very interesting Toisvus. And Toisvus asks, how could it be that we don't know, that Chazal knew that there were no f- fish that have scales and no fins? How could they know that if you have scales, you have to have fins? How do they know that? That's a lot of Guts to say something that they know all the species and species in the whole world. How could they possibly know? And he discusses it, and he goes back and says maybe it comes from Adam Harishon that he gave the, the names for everything. There's also a, a Gemara, there's also a Chazal that says that Moshe Rabbeinu, in the Midbar, that they knew he he showed them all kinds of fish and all kinds of animals and said whether they're kosher or not. That's a, that, that's a medrash. So we have that also. But Toysus talks about Adam, and then Toysus says something interesting. Maybe it's a halacha l'moshe which means that Hashem gave over to Moshe a Kabbalah of, uh, that whenever you'll see scales, you know there were fins. So uh, the Gemara says that if you find a piece of fish, and halacha says that, if you find a piece of fish with only scales on it, you can make the assumption that it's kosher. In fact, we do that. You do. I hopefully, I hopefully I don't, but I do. We get fish. I hate to tell you this because if you if you ha- if it's before supper, I don't know what you're preparing tonight. If you're having fish, then you know I maybe you should hang up. The the uh, we buy fish today. A lot of it comes from China, Vietnam. Don't ask where we're getting it from. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying bad, good. I'm, I'm not going to discuss that now. But the, but that's the fact that a tremendous amount of our fish today is coming from areas where there's no kosher observant Jew within 
500 miles or more. The, Vietnam and China. Now, how do we get that fish? So, I don't know what every, every there's different hashkachas do differently, but let's say a very from hashkacha. What do they, what do they do? So they tell them to leave a little piece of skin on. If you leave the skin on, it'll have some scales. And even if there are no scales anymore, you can see the places where the scales were. And you could tell that this is really a kosher fish. Because you don't have to have fins. So they make fillets, and they leave a little piece, about a postage stamp size, of, of uh, skin on, so you can identify it as a kosher species. Now, between you and I, sometimes they cheat, and they take a little glue, and they take a little piece of skin, and they stick it on the back. That's what sometimes they do. That's cheating. And sometimes they catch them. And that's a big problem, huge problem. But the only way we could know is by leaving this little piece of skin on. And you have very, very from Hashgachos that are selling you this fish that came from China that no Jew ever saw it until it ended up in the local store near you. And it came in repackaged, packaged before, packaged there. Maybe it has the, the names of all the Hashgachos. Maybe it doesn't say it over there. Maybe they repacked it over here. But the only way that they know that that fish was kosher is because there's a little bit of, of skin left that you can identify as scale. And you never see a fin. But we have a Kabbalah from the Mishnah in Nida uh, uh, that you always, whenever you have a scales, you have fins. And as I said, it doesn't mention fish. It says whatever has scales has fins. So that should be it, right? Now, uh, the problem then is, and this, by the way, is, is in Shulchan Aruch too, that it, when, as I told you, if you find a piece of fish just with scales on it, you can use it. And we do it ourselves. So here we are. Now, the Stinkus marinus, and if I'm pronouncing it wrong, somebody has to correct me. <laughs> As for Stinkus marinus, which had scales but legs instead of the fins, the Toysvis Yomtov said that this fish has to be treif, has to be not kosher, because it didn't have the fins. And, because it, it, and, and, and anyway, this is not, this is not a fish. Because if you have legs, it's not a fish anymore. It's a sea creature. It's something else, but it's not a fish. So since it has legs instead of fins, it could, should not be considered a fish, and therefore it's treif. Because it's not one of the kosher animals. You don't have split hooves and, and chew its cut. So you got either one choice or the other. That was the opinion of the Toysvis Yomtev. Now, the, uh, there are other people. There's a Marie... Chagiz, uh, uh, the Knesses Gedoyla, Rav Yaakov Emden, the Malbim, and the Orach HaShulchan. By the way, Orach HaShulchan was in 1900, not, not 400 years ago. And they agreed with this ruling that the Snickers Marinus is an aquatic creature, not a real fish, and therefore it's treif. So, so far, the lineup is pretty strong. Anybody who learns you know, learns in yeshiva, learns in yeshiva, knows we're talking some of the big names in history. Yaakov Emden, the Malbim, Baruch Shulchan, the Knesset Adayla, Tosos Yomtov. I mean, these are, these are mainstays. And they said, it's treif. This is similar to the words of the Rambam, Rambam, who says that anything that doesn't look like a fish, 
So it's like a sea lion, right? Yeah, sea lion, you know. And the dolphin, the frog. It's not a fish. You're not going to be able to say just because it's in the water, it's going to be kosher. It's not a fish. So he says that the fact that it's in the water doesn't make it a fish. But the pre-Chadosh rejected the opinion of the Toysvist Yomtov. The pre-Chadosh is a big name. And he says that if it if it has scales, and it, and it has it has to have fins, and it's assumed kosher, whatever has scales, the Mishnah says it doesn't say fish. It applies to every sea creature, not just fish. And stinkus marinus is kosher according to him, according to him, the, uh, the pre chadosh that the stinkus marinus is glot kosher, because it has scales. Therefore. It's a given that it's kosher. Unbelievable. The Bechor Shor wrote that in his assessment, the whole disagreement was, was coming from a colossal misunderstanding, and all opinions would agree to an alternate interpretation. He felt that although it would be considered a sea creature, the stinkus marinus should still be kosher for a different reason. Listen to what he said. Interesting cop, as we say. Although this fish, quote unquote, it's not a real fish, has no real fins, its feet are equivalent to fins, and therefore it's a halachic definition of a fish. That's the Bechor Shor. So we, the Bechor Shor is a, is, a, is a heavyweight, and the Prechadish is a heavyweight, and so far we come up with several people saying, you could eat this stinkus marinus and uh, invite your friends and relatives and the Rabbanim. Now, Rabbi Yonason Eibschitz agreed in theory with the pre-Chadosh that Chazal's rule included anything living in the water, not just fish. He conjectured, though, that possibly that rule was not meant to be absolute. It was sort of a generality. But if you know that something is not kosher, it's not kosher. And if you know something that can't be eaten or won't be eaten, then it, it doesn't fit into that category. Generally, if a fish has scales, you could assume it has fins. But it doesn't mean you can't find a fish that doesn't have. Wow! This is not like Toysvus. Because Toysvus says, it, what it says in the Mishnah is either Adam Arishon deciding that every single fish that has scales has fins and that there can't be an exception under any circumstances. And the only reason the Chazal knew it is because they got it from Adam Arishon or Halacha Moshe Messinai. It was transferred down from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way to us. And here, that's Toysvus. And here, the Rav Yonis and Ipshah says, no, it says in the Mishnah, that's a general rule. It doesn't mean that you can't find an exception. So according to this understanding, stinkus marinus could be considered an exclusion to the rule, and therefore it's not kosher. So other people also hold like this. The Yeshuas Yaakov, the Shoil Meshiv, and the Ketzavah Kabbalah. So these are big names. So we have already a, a big split. We have those who are saying that the stinkus marinus is glat kosher, it's really a fish, it has its fins on the fish, etc. I mean, it's the legs on the, on the fins, and that's and it's, called, it's like a fish. Some say it can't be kosher because the, the, the Torah only permitted fish, and this is not a fish because it has legs. 
And so, and, and, and some are saying that there may be an exception over here, that maybe all the animals, all the fish that are in the water are included, even things that are not fish, even other things are, would be included to the rule of if it has scales, it has fins. But this is, you see clearly, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the rule. So therefore, it isn't, it, it isn't included. Or do we say that Chazal had this Kabbalah from Moshe, Moshe Misenai, and there's no way in the world that that could be changed. It means 100% of the time. You know the famous thing. We, we mentioned it maybe here. If not, you've heard it before. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says in the Torah, there's only four animals that don't have, that only have one simon, chewing the cud or split hoofs, having one and not the other. Only four animals. And that's a proof, many use, that the Torah is true. Because how could anybody write that without knowing? What happens if they discover something in Africa as they try to claim that they found a while ago with sort of a boar that they found that they claimed that it was split hooves and two was cut. There was a whole discussion about that. A certain kind of pig. But uh, we, 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 we haven't found any exception to that rule. The only four animals that have two its cut or split hooves, one or the other. We don't have any, uh, the only uh, the ones that have neither one, uh, there's hundreds of thousands of them. And the ones that have uh, kosher, uh, the kosher animals are very limited. But, but this, this in between is only four animals. And when the Torah said that, many people say, how could they know? It can't be a human idea. The Torah can't be coming from humans. It has to be from HaKadosh Baruch because he's the only one who could know that in all history there'll never be an exception. Because if there was an exception, was a fifth, then people would go around saying, ha, the Torah is not true, chas v'shalom. So therefore, when you see that the Torah put himself in the line, that means that the Torah is true. And if Chazal put themselves in the line and said, there are no exceptions, every fish has scales, has spins and it's kosher. Just having the scales makes it kosher. So if, the, if, that's what's, if that's what Chazal said, then that's a proof. Chazal are telling the truth, and, and, and it has to be 100%. An exception, that's what the Bechor Shor wants to say, but it's not the way everybody else is learning. Okay. I'm sorry, the Yerusalem Ibshit said that. Now, in strong contrast to this understanding of Chazal's statement, the Taz emphatically declared no fish in the world has scales and no fins. Meaning that Chazal's rule was meant to be unconditional and consequently, by definition, there cannot be an exception. Most authorities agree to this understanding, with men, uh, including the Prichadosh, the Chido, and the Kafachayim, ruling accordingly, the Stinkus Marinus is indeed kosher based on this, since it did have scales. So this is really scary, that you had people said you could eat this animal because it has scales. And obviously the scales had to be the right kind of scales. It has to be scales that could be removed by scraping it that comes off, not scales that are just scaly and they don't come off. It has to be things you could take off with a knife or whatever to just you know, pull them off. So that they actually had scales, and that was the story. Now, what's the reality? So there was a scientific study in 1840. This is a couple hundred years after the original issue. And there was a rabbi, Avraham Zutra, from Munster, Munster, 
who identified the Snicus marinus as a relative of the scorpion, a type of poisonous toad. Similarly, the Chassam Sofa wrote that he accepted the findings of expert scientists who confirmed that the Snicus marinus is not a sea creature at all. <laughs> Listen to this one. It lives on the shore and occasionally jumps into the water like a frog. <laughs> so it really isn't the sea creature at all, according to the Chassam Sofer. Wow. This is all late Svarim, hundreds of years after the original discussion. According to these Gedolim, uh, the Chassam Sofer and I don't know who the other Gedolim, uh, this, well, I'm not, I assume he meant Bab Zutra. So he says, according to these Gedolim, our fish, that means the Stinkus Marinus, was not a fish, but a Sheretz, a non-kosher crawling land animal that goes in the water for a swim. This would make the entire discussion irrelevant because the Stinkus Marinus would not form the category of Chazal's statement because what does it got to do with me a fish? I can also go swim in the water. Doesn't make you a fish. The fact that an animal goes in for a bath doesn't make it a fish. If it can swim a little bit under the water, doesn't make it a fish. So therefore, uh, this would, would, would back up that Chazal statement, which is maybe even includes anything in the water, but it's, a fit, it's something that lives in the water, and that's its principal location, and not something that uh, has scales and doesn't really live in the water but lives on land. There was a gone, the Kozaglova gone, who actually uses this fish as a testament to the divinity of the Torah. He says, because of this stinkus marinus, it proves that the Torah is true. Why? As the only exception to Chazal's rule, it's not a fish. It's a lizard. It's a scorpion or whatever you call it. So in other words, this proves that Chazal were right. That's what he's saying. On the other hand, not only does the Dark Chuva not accept Rav Zutra's scientific study to say that this Stinkus Marinus is not a, does not live in the water, but he writes a, a strong response, and he can't understand how can one place these findings from non-halakhic sources among the Chuvas Haga'onim without a clear proof from Zala Paiskin. In other words, a scientist is going to tell you that this is a land animal and not a fish, he, he's not ready to accept that, the dark Chuva. That was recent, Sefer. According to this opinion of the dark Chuva, would also unsubstantiate the conclusion of the Chassam Sofer, for although the Chassam Sofer agreed with the Toysvaz Yomtov's conclusion that the Stinkus Marinus is not kosher, his claim is that it's not a true seeing me creature. It's based on scientific experts. So, so he's going with scientific experts. So we, we're, we're led to uh, you know, a, a, a question of who are we going to consider to be the authorities that we're going to rely upon. Now, I'm not going to uh, belabor it anymore because obviously nobody's going to eat this thing. And what you're going to hear now is very, very interesting. It's a postscript. And this is from uh, Rabbi Spitz. Scientifically, it means today's science, it appears that the classification of Stinkus marinus is a misnomer, as it's categorized as a lizard 
from the skink family. Now, that's not skunk, it's skink, S-K-I-N-K, the skink family, a lizard. And it's called sandfish lizard. Sounds closer now to land, right? Sandfish lizard. Although a non-aquatic, which means it doesn't live in the water, it's been proven by the journal Science, volume 325, July 17, 2009, and a study that was published by Daniel Goldman, Undulatory Swimming in Sand, Subsurface Locomotion of the Sandfish, which is our Stinkus marinus. He calls it a lizard. And he, what he does is, I'm making a quote, it generates thrust to overcome drag by propagating an undulatory traveling wave down the body. In other words, although it's a lizard, it does possess fish-like characteristics as it swims through the sand beneath the surface. So, again, what it is, I leave it up to you. But the problem is that we see that great Gedolim argued whether this is kosher based upon that Chazal. Because if Chazal said it, it's immutable. It can't be other than what Chazal said. And so... If you want to, you'll say, we proved that Chalzal is immutable, and we found out that there's not really, a, not really a fish. If you want to call it a fish, you'll call it a fish. If you want to call it an exception, you'll call it an exception. Whatever it is, people have to be careful. Now, years ago, somebody came to me. First, he called on the phone. Hello, Rabbi Wickler. My grandson caught a fish. Oh, very nice. And but I don't know if it's kosher. Oh, what is it? He said it's a sea robin. A sea robin has wings, but it, they're funny. I'm sorry, uh, it has scales. Uh, scales. It, has, it has fins. Sea robins. So he wanted to know if it's a kosher fish. I said, if it's got scales. If it's got scales, it's a fish. So he said, yeah, it's got scales. So, but I'm not sure if they're real scales. So I said, come over. So there, at my front door, is a boy about 10 years old with a pail and a fish in it. And his grandfather, they came in. We examined the scales. I said, the scales, plus the fact that I chucked up, and as far as I could see, that the sea robin should be a kosher species. And the fact that it looks like it's walking on the bottom of the floor, it's just the way it looks, because it makes some kind of movements with the fins. It looks like legs. But it's not legs. It's really just fins. And this is a kosher variety. And uh, we, we discussed it, and then I found out that there are some varieties of sea robin that are probably not kosher because they don't have proper scales. So the only way to really know anything is about the scales. you got to have a fish, and have to have scales, and then you're, you're good to go. So that's our story about this, but it, it, it shows that halacha is a dynamic. It's a continual process. It shows that you can have very strong opinions either way, and they, uh, they can be based on very good sources. But the bottom line is, Chazal won. That's clear as a bell. No one's uh, questioning the immutability of the Chazal, whether it was a generic, general statement or it was a specific statement, an exclusive statement, complete statement, couldn't be immutable, it couldn't be changed at all, not any exceptions or not. That was a little bit of a discussion. But basically, we see that Chazal had been leading us and with an amazing way, just look for the scales. 
get you a little piece of postage stamp size of a, a skin left on your on your tilapia or your salmon or whatever it is, and then you have you're entitled to take it from a, a setting which doesn't uh, prove that it's uh, that's coming filleted, and you can't see the whole fish. Now, I I have other things I wanted to to say. We have time, and I'm going to try something which is very very different. And uh, we have other things for the future, but somebody's pushing me a little bit to, uh, to spread the word on this particular uh, uh, this particular piece that was written in Dafakashras. Dafakashras is put out by the OU, and uh, the head of it uh, asked me if I would publicize the words that were said about Reb Chaim Goldzweig, who was the one of the outstanding people in Kashrus for over 50 years. The Rabbi Ganak said about Rabbi Goldzweig, Rabbi Goldzweig was the OU. He, you know, or he is the OU. When he was alive, he said he is the OU, meaning that everything was piggybacked on his Chochmas. One man, amazing man. But I was asked to go to the Levaya, and I went. And his Leviah, I heard the most amazing hesped from his son. And they published part of it in Dafa Kashras. The Dafa Kashras should go to the OU and tell me when I get Dafa Kashras. Maybe they'll email it to you. I'm on their email list. You get Rabbi Yosef Grossman at the OU. Just write Grossman at OU.org. Grossman, two S's. Grossman at OU.org say you want to get the Dafakashras, or especially the one that had about Rabbi Chaim Goldswag. I'm going to read you as much as time allows from this particular Hesped. It's not like a Hesped you ever heard before. It's, it, it's tremendous insight into a unique human being said by his son in, 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 and talks about the Kashras and why he did it and what it meant to him, and what Rabbi Chaim Goldsberg meant to all of us, and how a human being could reach some of the highest levels in this world. And you don't have to believe it. You can go check it out. But I'm, I'm reading to you word for word from the Hesped of Rabbi Chaim Goldsberg by his son, Rabbi Zev Goldsberg. Tata, you never lived in a house. You never had a bias in this world. Your life in this world was just an ohel, temporary. You were never anywhere for more than a minute. Coming, going, am I coming or going? I don't know. Let me check the next ticket. He's always traveling to some other country. I remember one time I was nudging my father that his bed in, the, his, in the, his house, the mattress was sagging. It wasn't anything that a normal human being would sleep on. Tata, just buy a new mattress. But everything was machtevek. He pushed it aside. How much did he sleep on the mattress anyway? He never slept. A few hours here and there. His room was packed with svarim. Piles. You couldn't move a paper. Or everything would come tumbling down. And he knew where every single paper was. And the file cabinets 
one time he couldn't find a file. And he didn't label the files. He knew where every single thing was and nobody else in the world could find it. We went through the house. We found his notes. His notes on the Parsha he would give over to the Talmudim or anyone he came in contact with. And those notes were written on papers from hotels, Marriott, Hilton, wherever he would take them, wherever he would take with him during the weeks he carried with him in his I'm sorry, wherever he would take with him during the week he carried with him always in his suitcase. He carried with him all the time. He would never check it. That's where he would take his notes, and that's where he would learn with them. Uh, uh, he'd, he'd learn with when he was on the road. Not clear from the, the wording here, but I think it means he was trying to say that the, the papers he wrote on, the, you know, from the Hilton and the Marriott, and he, had, he carried some in the suitcase, you'll see. And when he was in the house, my brother mentioned, he had the lights on. Even the entire Shabbos, he didn't sleep with the lights off. How much did he sleep? He barely slept. Friday night after a suda, he would go up and learn for hours. The Pashtas, he was, un- was approachable by anyone, even children. He was a candy man in shul. Yes, the candy man. Little kids would come over to ask him a shayla by davening to get a candy. The rabbi, the rabbi, he was the rabbi of the shul, but he was also the candy man. He wanted to give, just to give anything to anybody. Eventually, he had to give it up because they were coming during the Kriya Sashma Esrei. He had to give it because his davening was staring his davening. His whole life he was busy with questions, people calling. Listen to this. There were, so, there were four, sometimes five lines in the house, and they would all be ringing all the time, day and night, day and night. There was no day, there was no night. It didn't matter because it's nighttime here, so I, I could go to sleep, but in Taiwan it's still daytime, so you had to answer somebody's shadow from Taiwan. My brother mentioned that if he had the same yard site as a different person in the shul, he gave everything to the other person. When he was the rub in the shul, it was his shul. And he had yard site. No, everything. The aliyah, everything. Another yid needs it. I heard from him many times that when he was a bacher, just starting out, still in yeshiva, he graduated high school and he had a good head. I don't know if we can say that he had a photographic memory, but his memory was incredible. He remembered numbers and labels and things you couldn't imagine. He was offered scholarships to many colleges. At that time, we're talking about the 1950s, 1960s, this was the normal American way. And my father was a regular American boy. He was a Telzer Talmud, and he was offered free scholarships to 10 prestigious colleges. And his father told him, your job is to do for the klal. Your job is you need to do for the klal. Forget the colleges. Do for the klal. I believe that's what my father took as a mantra. This was his life's mission. Kashas was part of that. Doing for the klal. A small part, a big part. Maybe it was doing for the klal whatever people needed. There was no established kashras in America at that time. And that's what he took under his wing to do for the klal. His chesed, that was his main part of doing for the klal. I was with him many times as well, and he would have packs of cash and envelopes, and my brother and I would drive him with him and leave this one in, in this door and that one in that door. I remember one time, it was Erev Yom Kippur, and he heard a Jew who lived far away and didn't have a Sa'uda. 
He packed up the sauda that he, my mother made and drove far out to give it to that Jew. He missed davening on Erev Yom Kippur in the shul. Everyone was wondering, where's the Rav? He got back mamish right before davening. I don't know if he ate before Yom Kippur that year. Our home was Pesuch L'Rabim. That means it's L'Vrocha. It was completely open for everybody. I cannot begin to tell you the type of people whom you wouldn't even want to walk within their Dalit Amas. You wouldn't go near these people. You wouldn't want to go near them. And these were the types of people he had, we had daily in every Shabbos. My Zaydi used to have these people daven in the shul. He needed people who had that, the time to stay because he davened along Shmon Esrei. My Zaydi enjoyed these people. He really did. My Zaydi gave a bracha that you should have these people because you need them. And my father kept that. The house was open for everybody. In the shul, anyone was accepted. In our house, we had everybody. There was no one who was not a, who was a, not a Ben Bias. Everyone felt at home. They'd feel that they were part of the home, maybe even more than us. We'd come home, and there would be mishlochim sleeping on our beds. <laughs> a yid was in town and called my father, who had just returned from traveling. He was looking to find kosher food, and there wasn't any. So my father went shopping. They went downtown to bring food to this person. He had no idea who he was. In other words, the man didn't know who Rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi Goldspike was. It didn't matter who the person, no, he didn't know who the other guy is. It didn't matter who the person was. It was all the same to him. Chesed for another year. Eventually, I hopped the whole thing. There were so many of these people that would come to our house. This one would take out, this one would take out the garbage. This one would straighten up. Eventually, I realized these were all the people my father helped. And to thank him, they would come back and do whatever they could around the house. These were all people he gave money to. My father told us, that my Zaydi never saved a penny for himself. He would give everything away by the end of each night. If someone came to him for food for Shabbos, close to Shabbos, he didn't have any money anymore, he would borrow money to give away, and his Rebetzin would come over and say, ask, what about us? And he would say, for us? The Rebbeinu Sholem will take care. Hashem's going to take care of us. Other people, that's our job to take care of them. My father was the same way. We, uh, I don't know if we're going to have enough to finish the whole thing, so I may shorten it a little bit. My father was the same way. Simple of simple. There was nothing for himself, but for everybody else he had. Everybody and anybody. When my Zadie told him to do for the clow, the clow included every single pert, prot of the clow, every single individual. It wasn't a klal like most people think. Oh, oh, you do for the klal, like the general Jewish population. The busiest man in the world that I've ever seen who had no day and no night, a person who was oisek b'tzorchei tzibur to the fullest extent of the word, didn't forget any prat. And his father took care of everybody. Uh, where did a person of such magnitude with so much on his shoulders day and night not forget about anyone. The only time he went to an amusement park was if someone was not well in the city and they needed someone to help out with the kids. Then we were going to Kitty Land all the time. My father flew a lot. Today, if you mention you, that your name is Goldswag, it does a lot for you with United Airlines and American Airlines. His mileage account was a Chesed account. He had countless hundreds of thousands of miles. You hear that? 
hundreds of thousands of miles. Someone told me that a choyle who had an illness and they did a, a goyrol to see if they, would, if they should do a certain procedure. The goyrol came out that they should do it. But it was to be done in a faraway country. They didn't have the money to fly there. They'd already spent so much on the medical bills. He said, I can't afford it, my father said. I didn't ask you if you could afford to go. I asked you what the girl said. I'll take care of it. He got the tickets, put them up in a hotel, everything with no question. There were countless people like that who benefited from my father. What I'm telling you was a tiny drop of the ocean, just a small look from behind. A friend of mine ran an organization, and he would tell me the donations my father would give, $100, $180 every check. Where did he have that kind of money? My father, same as his father, never kept a savings account. He didn't save a penny for himself. He had a checking account, used what he needed, and the rest he gave to everyone else. I know it doesn't sound real, what I'm telling you. I mean, you, you don't hear this about people. But this was Chaim Goldswag. You had to meet him to really appreciate who this man was. He looked like the absent-minded professor. Nobody ever thought he, was, he, was, he knew anything. He walked into a plant, and they thought, look at this guy, this, this schleppy Orthodox Jew. And all of a sudden, in 10 minutes, he would, make, he, would, he would show them that he knew more about the plant than they did. And they, were only, they owned the plant. They ran the plant. He knew everything. He, he had the ability to walk in in a few minutes to tell you if anything was not kosher, if anything was off here. And it, it was... It was mamish, you know, I, you, there was nobody in Kashrus, probably ever, on his level. That, that's the truth. I mean, I, that much I know myself from where I sat, and I met him a few times, but, you know, I, I, I really didn't have a chance to, to know him, unfortunately. Here's another story. When he became ill and moved to Los Angeles, slowly the Mishlochim found out that Chaim Gzolzwag had moved. Some of them would come, and they'd show me copies of the checks. This is what he gave me last year. They were checks for thousands of dollars, a check for $2,000. He didn't have $2,000. It's unbelievable what he did. It's, it got to the point that I had to take away the checkbook because now my job was to take care of you, Tati. In, the old, in the later the year, the last few years, he was sick. Everything that he did for everyone else. The Rebona Shalom took care of him. When we took him in, we had no idea how we would make it. The care that he needed 24 hours a day. He never had a, he never had a savings account, so he didn't have a penny. I didn't know how we would do it. But I watched in awe how the Rebona Shalom sets everything up. And I can't go into details now, but every detail the Rebona Shalom took care of. We found an apartment a few blocks away. Someone had been living there for 15 years and suddenly moved. The owners, although there were, there were many people on the waiting list for the apartment, gave it to us. Nothing makes sense. The unbelievable hashkocha tati. You took care of the world, and the Yippon Sholem took care of you. Anyway, um, I'm not sure how many of these to read to you. It's getting late. I remember never Pesach. Money was tight. We didn't have money for a yomtiv. And he came down and he said to the kids, if you leave the room, 
you should shut the lights. It's hard to, to make Yom Tov. We don't even have the funds for this. He was upset. A half hour later, he came back from upstairs, smiling and happy. We asked him, what happened? He told me, every month I send out checks to Anie Eretz Israel. $100 a month, every month, to 12 Aniyim in Eretz Israel. Do the arithmetic. Okay? I thought. I didn't have it. And, and couldn't do it this month. But somehow, some, now someone just gave me a check. And I was able to cover the money for the Aniyim in Eretz Israel. <laughs> he just said he didn't have money to make Pesach. But that wasn't the thought in his mind. Aniyim Eretz Israel. I don't know who those people are. Who knows? I don't know where he got the names from. But all those people were on his monthly payroll. Money came in, and it went out faster than it came in. A little bit more. I remember he was making a chasana. And I was in the car with people, with him. People would help contribute to help him make a chasana. I was driving with him when he got a phone call from someone who had shaykhs to his account. And I heard the other person say, how could you do this? What happened? He heard of someone else who needed money to make a chasana. The money people gave for his own chasana, he was channeling to this other person. The person on the phone said, this money was collected for you, not to give away. My father was very strong, was stark. It's none of your business what I do with the funds. You gave it to me, so it's mine and I'll use it the way I want. As children, we were able to see a little bit. If I would have to write a book, it wouldn't be a volume, it'd be an encyclopedia. Someone in Los Angeles mentioned the story of Kiddush Lavana. He would drive my father hundreds of miles to be Mekanish Lavana. I saw it more than once. He would take a flight to Milwaukee because there was no Lavana to Mekanish in Chicago. Whatever I'm going to say is not enough. I just, I just hope to give a little dogma. The MS is, I hope that we should just be a dogma of what you left behind. The name Chaim Goldzweig opened every door. Who didn't know him? Everybody did. You could get in anywhere. I ate by the most hush of a people in Eretz Israel because my name is Goldzweig. They would tell me, your father's a gone. He didn't want to be a gon. He didn't want to be a greiser mensch. He wanted to be the most poshut a person. He never spoke about himself. He never told us to do any of the minhagim he kept. The things from his father, he never put it on any of us. He would do what he would do because he saw that's what his father did, but he never asked us to do it. 2 a.m., 4 a.m., he was leaving to go who knows where, my mother was there with him, making him sandwiches, packing him up. Who could live without a husband? I know it was hard for me to live without my father sometimes. Most of my childhood years, there were times he would come home every other Shabbos because he was very far away and needed to be there for a long time. Once a week, sometimes one, every other week, we tried not to miss a Shabbos, but it happened many times. Your avoda would not have been sh shayach had my zaidi not shown you your zivuk. Now the mother 
went along with the whole thing. He was always marveled at it. It didn't make any sense to me, the whole thing. My mother's from Eretz Israel, my father's from Chicago, who was a Shatran. My Zaidi told him, that's who your Zivig is. Mommy, you, okay, let's skip that a little bit. Now, uh, he ends off here a little bit like this. It wasn't my idea during the last many years to bring my parents to Los Angeles. I don't think we had to, to, to we had, had, had the, the koichas to take care of my father properly. But I need to mention my Eze Konegdo, everything because 24-7, and for that I owe you a tremendous Hakar Satov. This is a long, a long has been. It went on a very long time. I just, I just took a selection from the Dafa Kashras. We were talking about Reb Chaim Goldzweig, who was the head of Kashras in the world for 50 years. Everybody went to him. If you have a chance, you look at the Dafa Kashras. I gave you the personal notes from the Sun, but the people who were in Kashras from the OU and from otherwhere, elsewhere. That was the man you called. I remember once a gentleman told me that he worked for a certain organization, I'll keep quiet which organization it was, and he called up Rabbi Heinemann, Moshe Heinemann, at 12 o'clock at night, because Rabbi Heinemann used to take calls very late, probably still does. And, and, he, and the man said to me, Rabbi Heinemann answered him, he said, but you know, you're not working for me. You work for somebody else. He says, but I can't reach anybody at 12 o'clock at night. You're the only one I can get. Well, Rabbi Gaim Chaim Goldsberg was the person that everybody got. Everybody. They knew that was it. The OU sent down a man to study, there's an understudy, to grab as much information as is possible. And that man just passed away also. That was Isha Blech. So these are, th this is from one of the greatest men in the Kashrus history. If there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, who's who, right? I am Goldswice going to be in the, in, in the top ten, if not number one. And what I like the idea, and the reason I read this to you is because I want you to understand that a mashkiach is a human being, and he could be a Torah giant, he could be a Baal Chesed, he could, he's a Moisen Nefesh for Klai Yisrael and for us. That's what Hashkoch is all about, and that's why I give out an award every year to the Mashkiach of the year because I want everybody to understand what it means to be a Mashkiach, what it means, Messias Nefes, for Kashras, what these people are doing for us on a day to day basis, and how we have to look at them. Maybe they don't look so fancy the way they see them in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm not gonna be, they're not going to be dressed up in a Shabbos suit. Maybe they don't look so you know, put together in some ways. But that's our kashras, and this mysterious nefesh. If I would tell you the stories that Mashkichim tell me, they would, I don't say they're going to equal Rabbi Goldzweig's, but you would be in awe of, of the mysterious nefesh of the Mashkichim and of their wives, letting them work in this field. Long hours, little pay, lack of respect in many, many ways, but l'shem shemayim. And I still remember one mashkiach coming out, Vada Queens he used to work for, and I would ask him, Yassi, how was it? How did it go tonight? He says, Baruch Hashem, we did good, and that's the, he was he was happy that he could deliver good kashras to all the people who were there. And that's what that's what Hashkoch is all about, and that's what we should be thinking about.
I just want to, uh, you know, I suggest anybody want to get this, you can get it from uh, Grossman at OU.org, and you ask for the Dafa Kashras, ask for the one about Rechaim Goldsmark that just came out, and if you want to put in a, get it on their list, it's a wonderful list, the Dafa Kashras, they'll send it to you an email, it doesn't cost them anything to throw another name on. And uh, this is uh, the kind of work that we do, close with the mashgichim, close with the agencies, and that's why I, I have information that most people don't have, and that's why, unfortunately, my phone rings a lot, but not, Baruch Hashem not as bad as his, because the Baruch Hashem, there are other organizations and people who can give you information. But people do need to check things out to get somebody to help them with their Kashmir's questions and to, you know, to, to take Kashmir's very seriously. Just if they're taking it so seriously to make your food kosher, then you have to take it seriously to make sure that you're getting something with the hashkacha, with a responsible hashkacha. This has been uh, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. Uh, if you want to reach me during the week, if you want to, uh, to get, get a subscription to Kashrus Magazine, if you want to get the kosher supervision guide, you want to get the kosher travel guide, you're interested in a sample copy, or you want the, the we have Kashrus Monthly, which is a monthly update of everything in Kashrus. Just give us a ring at 718-336-8544, 718-336-8544 for Kashrus Magazine, or you can email us at Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. That's K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, wishing you a wonderful week.